0: Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in
1: Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and
0: tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold.
1: Our guest today is Taylor Brown, the COO and co founder of FiveTran. Taylor is passionate about helping good humans build awesome products. He draws inspiration from his time as a liberal arts student at Amherst College, experience as a designer at North social and a lifelong athletic endeavors. Most recently, he's built FiveTran, a fully managed automated data integration provider from an idea to a rapidly growing global business valued at more than 1.2 billion. He believes that magic happens when you can build a simple yet powerful product that is truly innovative and helps users solve a hard problem. Taylor understands this is not only possible with an amazing team and is privileged to work with the best in the business. So Taylor, welcome to the Second Command Podcast.
0: Cameron, thanks uh, a ton for having me today.
1: Yeah, I appreciate it. So just put it in layman's terms for us. What's 5 really do? Explain it, to <laughs> so, a, explain it to a girl in a bar. <laughs> um,
0: okay, if 5Trend is an automated data integration um, provider. And what that actually means in layman's terms is, when you're a company, a business, you're leveraging all these different uh, software different software tools whether it's for your ad you know systems your marketing systems your um, you know sales systems payment systems like all these different you know tools are available to you and the thing is each of these tools is collecting a ton of data and a certain size of that data becomes quite valuable to you but it's valuable to you outside of each of those systems when it's combined together so for example you may send 10,000 emails a month and you want to know which of those emails actually converted into a payment so you have to have your you know your email data you You have to have your payment data. And so what 5chan does is we connect to all your disparate systems and we replicate that data into a centralized data warehouse, like a Snowflake or a BigQuery. Um, And then, you know, and we do, there's like a fair amount of heavy lifting and, and automation and work that has to be done to get that data out. And we do all that. And then it's in that central place. And then, you know, our customers can then query directly against that data and make sense of, you know, their business from it.
1: So, are are you guys more of a consulting company than a SaaS company, or is it? A, is there a bit of the the product in there as well? What would your like? To, to, I guess the product is there, but is the
0: real work the the consulting side or the people side of that business? That's it's an it's an amazing question because um, I think in traditional the way this was done traditionally was that that pipeline was a custom pipeline, and so the tools like that you that you leverage for that were generally some sort of workflow tool that you would have to set up and configure and things break and everything else you was kind of on you or the consulting firm that you hired to do that. Five Trends innovation is that we're 100% product. We have zero services team. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we do everything through an automation system and it's all uh, software. So when you go in and you set up like a AdWords to BigQuery integration, Every single one of our customers is setting up the exact same integration. Our system is like smart enough to go in and figure out what do you have that's custom within there, move it over, load it to the warehouse, and then continue to keep it up to date. Anything changes in the source, we're going to automatically change the warehouse for you. So it's all done through the system. Fuck. That's huge. That's what's giving you scale. Yeah. Exactly. How? It's How? also it's and it's standardized. So like if. You know, if you go to one company and you're head of data and you're like, okay, I want to use this for all my advertising systems. and I'm going to like pull it all in. And you, you know, you then you've taken all the time to then build all these models, and everything on top of it. You leave that company, go to a different company, you can set it up and you're going to get all the same stuff. And you're like, cool. I know exactly how this works. I can just build on top of this again, because it's extremely standardized in that way.
1: But don't, so don't companies use the data in different ways or does that matter? Like
0: absolutely they use it, well you know i think a lot of companies like to believe they use it in different ways i think if you actually look at it probably like 75% the same and 25% unique to that business from again this is like I'm, I'm kind of guessing on this one but uh the the thing that we replace or change from the previous generation of tools was that what we found is a lot of the folks who should have been spending time analyzing you know they're spending 50% of their time just getting the data out just making sure that it's they're auditing it. And like, they're only spending 10, 20% of the time actually analyzing it and that analyzing and spending the time. That's like the most important thing. I think that, 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 companies should be spending their time on.
1: So do you guys just say no more often than you say yes, then like, do you tell these big companies? No, it doesn't do that. Can't do that. Or you don't need that. Or have you been able to build it all out because you've got so many customers that now it does it as well?
0: So it's a it ha, early on. There's a lot of no. Um, I think the the thing that it's it's been more of is a reframing for these customers because a lot of them are used to like cool. Hey, I, I can I'm like I'm used to just building all this stuff myself, and you know, and then loading it in. And a lot of times they would do what's called the, like ETL, like extract, transform, and load. So you're in the way like uh, along the journey, you're transforming this data. And the reason for that is because the old warehouses that were on-premise were not, they were constrained by the size of them or the amount of memory or power or whatever. And now the new warehouses are much larger. You can like have infinite scale. And so the idea is that you just take everything, you move it over, we do a little bit of cleaning, but then you do a lot of your your actual modeling logic within the warehouse itself, closer to the folks who know how to do all that stuff within SQL within the analyst kind of layer there. Um, and so we've had to teach that over and over again, like, hey, you don't need to do this transformation, all this like extra heavy lifting, because a lot of that transformation was was honestly around uh, trying to make your warehouse more performant. And now these cloud warehouses are ridiculously performance. So you just, you know, you don't, like 50% of the complexity just goes away. And so we just uh, reframe the, here's how to rethink about it. And then the big question is cool, cool, cool. like you have a hundred connections. I have, you know, 6,000, you know, connections that I need and you have, you know, there's 40 or 50 different ones that you don't currently have. How do we get those? And so then we have to build a roadmap to go build out these additional connections, but we do not have a single connection. That's unique to only one customer. It's like, this connection works for every customer.
1: Yeah. Once you have that connection built, you can actually bring it in. Do you sell based on the number of connections as well? Is that like an additional fee?
0: We used to sell based on connections and there was kind of a price for connection. We've shifted to just being priced on monthly active rows. So essentially unique uh, rows that get passed through our system each month.
1: What's a row? Like a row of data?
0: Yeah. Like, a, yeah. Like even if you look at Excel, you're like, cool, I've got a, you know, if you have a table, each one of those is a row. And yeah. so if you're moving, you know, to, to each one of those that gets passed through unique. So if you have one row that goes like 50 times in one month, rolling count it as one.
1: Huh do you guys have much churn in terms of customers or is it pretty low? I'd think that your customers would be pretty sticky once they're in they're They're not going anywhere.
0: Yeah. We've got relatively low churn Uh, compared to benchmarks. We're, yeah, we're in the, um, you know, 10%, less than 10% per year and, and even lower than that. And I think so, some of the term we've seen is we've shifted to a self-service model for the smaller companies in the last year. And so there's companies that come on and come off and come on and trying stuff out. So it's a little bit hard to understand and look at that super closely. But the larger customers, I mean, once you build infrastructure yeah. on top of it, and it so long as it's reliable, so long as it's delivering... It's better than anything you can build internally. It's better than anything and more reliable than anything you could buy before through like the, you know, informatics of the world, because those are essentially tools where it's, Hey, here's a toolkit, go build what you need. And if something breaks, like call your own team. And we're like, Hey, we'll promise you data delivery day in and day out from point A to point B, something breaks. It's on us. Like we are going to go fix it. We have a team like a international team on 24 seven. That's basically sitting there watching your pipelines.
1: Has the pain in the ass of the smaller customers been worth it for you? I would say yes. The Peter factor, is it?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, yes. And I think we've also, you know, we've only recently introduced the, uh, like the ability to, to, to come on in there. We used to have a minimum, I think of, so like 10 to 12 K um, and that, you know, and, and going lower has actually just helped customers who are like, who oh, I, I only want to try this for one thing. Like we we see it as more of like a try before you buy. Um, the other side of it is just that there's not much configuration. So like, I think in a tool that's highly configurable, you have a lot of smaller customers who come in, they don't have the resources to set it up. They get kind of frustrated, then they make a lot of noise. Like FiveTrans product is as simple as like, you go in, like connect your, authenticate your warehouse, authenticate whatever sources you want in like a matter of clicks. And then that's it you just let it go and we just do everything else. And we set it up in such a way in which you can't configure it because we don't want people to screw it up. Yeah. <laughs> Cause then that like ruins, you know, their ability to, to like actually, you know, work and do the things that we're, that, that we've kind of promised them.
1: Are you guys at a critical mass size now where you don't need to add people or add as many people? Like, can you, can you double the size of the company but only add 10% more employees?
0: We're not quite there. And mainly, I think that's, partially because we're, we still have a lot of R and D that we're doing. Um, you know, we're built, we're innovating a ton right now, both in terms of new connectors, as well as in terms of a couple new products that we're, we're, we'll be releasing later this year. Um, and then on top of that, our go-to-market has spread globally a lot. And so there's a lot of areas that aren't as efficient, like EMEA is not as efficient as the U S APAC's not quite as efficient as the U S. And so as we're building those out, um, you know, it, it, everybody's not quite as efficient, but I am at, But we are starting to to slow down that. And, and every year we get a little bit more efficient. So our revenue per headcount continues to rise. And I think by the time we go public, we'll be in a, a very good place in the next two to three years. I was just speaking
1: that. to somebody yesterday and I gave them four data points they need to start measuring in their growth. And it was revenue per employee, gross margin per employee, profit per employee, and then salaries as a percentage of revenue. Do you track any numbers like that for efficiency, or are you worried about efficiency yet?
0: Yeah, we track a bunch of those. We look at rule of forty. We look at um, you know we look at CAC and CAC by segment, CAC by region. Um, you know, we're, we are looking at a bunch of those. We we do have we've we've set up a, like a global scorecard. I think of it as the like gaslight for the the vehicle for so we've set up a, a scorecard of ten metric ten or twelve metrics. For the whole company, and then we have one for each func- uh, each function as well, and so it's like cool. Like here's the key things we're looking at. Like for marketing, it's stage ones, it's cost for stage ones, it's cost for uh, um, for stage zeros. You know, it's like okay, how are we doing against this? Did you hit that number? Are you within the the cost for that that we were expecting? Um, and those just kind of help to say, cool. Like you're in the right you know realm here, or no, something's wildly off. And so we're looking at that every quarter and saying, all right, you got. Nine are good and three are off. Let's take a look at those three.
1: You just you just said something that I wrote about in my first book, Double Double, on on dashboards. And I talked about that the leadership team needs their one dashboard with 10 or 12 metrics. And then each business area needs their own dashboard. How did you just des- kind of like a car? Like, I don't need to see all 10,000 data points that the, that the computer is tracking. And I need to see the gas right in front or the speed right in front of me. And then mm-hmm. the gas can just light up when I'm less than an eighth, right? How did you decide which metrics the leadership team would be looking at? And when did you start putting those kind of dashboards in place?
0: So we've had dashboards a long like a long time. I think this last year um, we shifted to a consumption-based pricing model in February of last year, and uh, I think we weren't closely watched. Like we had our go-to-market dashboards, but we weren't closely watching some of the cost metrics and things like that. And so certain things tanked because there was this big shift, and I don't think we were keeping a close eye on it. Um, and as a result, it was like, okay, Hey, we need to sit down and really look at this. So it was a combination of our leadership team and, uh, a couple operations folks on my team and our finance head. We sat down and said, all right, what are the most important things for us to be looking at? Checked with the board then we went back and then we kind of like proposed things. Then the leaders of each functional group came back and said, no, I want this or no, I want that. or no, I want this. And some of those things were like, we can't actually measure that. We don't have the data. You know, it's like a bit of a horse trading thing. And then we end up with, all right, these are the things that we have. And uh, these are not necessarily, um, I would say operating metrics. Like we're not using these to help drive performance per se. They're mostly like, these are the things we're expecting of you. And if they drop below this, that's like a red light. But then we have a whole set of dashboards that are more operating metrics. Like, you know, um, here's the number our sales team needs to hit, or here's the number that, you know, each of these like functional areas needs to hit for marketing. And then they kind of have a, like it cascades down from there. And so each of the, the you know leaders of those functional groups have built each of those out with our analytics team over the last year and a half as well.
1: Okay, let's let's go back to the kind of to the beginning. So you and a childhood friend started this together. Is that the story that I understand?
0: Yeah, basically, yeah, yeah. Like a long time family friend. I mean, we um, George, my co-founder, our or CEO, CEO, he has. He and I have a you know set of cabins up on this um, on some land up in northern Wisconsin that's been in each of our families and ten other families collectively for a hundred years. Um, and so, growing up, he's from New York. I'm from Colorado, but we we some we spent some time up there in the summer every summer together, and our parents knew each other, and grandparents, and so so on and so forth. And so, when we both moved to San Francisco around the same time, um, I was working for a startup company. He was working for a startup company, and you know, I think it, at some point we realized like, Hey, we both want to start our own company. And I was just like, this person's extremely smart. I've got a lot of trust in this person and I've known them for a long time. Um, and so it was very lucky that we actually, that I felt we, we kind of were, were able to come together and start this company.
1: So, so you, you had the idea, was their idea together? Did you go through a few different rounds of coming up with ideas or, and then, and then where did you, how did you start? how did you fund it? <laughs>
0: So we early George left. We were actually up at our cabins in Wisconsin, and and George was like, "I, you know, things are kind of a little dysfunctional where I am, and I would love to start my own company." And at that point, I was doing kind of an MBA program plus working at my previous startup, and uh, and I was like, "Dude, just just leave and start your own thing." So he he kind of quit and spent a few months working on this idea, which is a numerics platform like MATLAB in the cloud. And his whole thesis came from. The time when he was at his uh, PhD lab, he was helping a lot of the scientists who didn't really know how to program to work with, with data. He was helping them learn how to program because he had an undergrad in computer science. And then he went to a biotech startup company after that. And he was again, helping all these other folks, all these other scientists work with data. And so his aha moment was, okay, Hey, look, there's, there's obviously a disconnect here. There's a lot of people who in science need work data that don't know how to, how can I help them with this? And so his idea was let's take one of these numeric platforms like MAT, like MATLAB or Mathematica, and let's just put it into the cloud and let's like you know build the infrastructure around it so that folks can come in and just work with it. And so that was his idea. I I at the same time was working for a company that was building applications for Facebook and whatever, and I was doing a lot of design and then kind of gotten some of the development. Um, and one of the challenges we had, which actually I hired an intern to help with is like getting all this data together around our customers and collating it and understanding like, who should we charge more money? So for example, we had Usher using this like $26 per month offering uh, of ours, and he should have been paying us like $1,000 a month. And we're like, Usher, like how did Usher, like this isn't, you know, this isn't right. So, you know, I, I knew that we kind of needed something like this. And so I, George, you know, George and I just started to join forces we applied to Y Combinator. We got accepted by Y Combinator, uh, and, which is its own crazy story. And I think they let us in partially just because they liked the combination of like an engineer and a designer who knew each other very well. Mm. That was like, and um, Paul Graham really liked the idea of, of MATLAB or Mathematica in the cloud. And so we got in with that. And within a, about a month, I spent a lot of time just, I didn't know anything about numerics platform, just calling everyone. And what I realized is like the numerics platform world was largely shifting to people didn't want to pay for it. It was like a four or $5 billion market cap, you know, industry that people shifted saying, hey, I, I, I would rather just use free tools like um, Python or R or whatever. And so we decided, well, why don't we shift our thinking to like, to um, businesses? Like, why don't we focus on helping analysts at businesses because we're surrounded by all these businesses now within Silicon Valley. And, you know, they probably need help with data too. And that was like, you know, the iteration that happened and we launched out of YC with big spreadsheets for big data. That was our, that was our initial launch. And we kind of raised a little bit of money. We raised about 750 K on a hope and a dream. And then we spent the next two years iterating on that idea of like spreadsheets and you know, we were looking at it, it was like 40% of analyst time was spent just getting data together, like 10 to 15% of the time was spent, you know, actually analyzing it. And the last, you know, 30, 40% was like evangelizing and sharing it. And so we were like, let's focus on the spreadsheet thing. Like, I think we can make this better. And that led to, you know, just because we built this like very performant spreadsheet with 200 million rows, you know, or, or whatever more, and that didn't make it easier to work with. It was like, okay, that doesn't make it easier. And then we, we learned about pivot tables. And then, you know, the, we started with some customers like, cool, like, this is a great spreadsheet, but then how do I get data into it? So we put it on top of Redshift. Redshift was a new data warehouse at the oh, time. Fuck. And then we're like, oh, cool. Like let's, people are like, how do I get data to that? So then we like, you know, built some integrations and we basically built like a kind of poor man's uh, BI tool. And uh, and then we essentially ran out of money in around 2015 And we just went out and we're like, let's just go sell. Let's just go sell what we can. And what happened from that was that a couple folks that we knew in Silicon Valley came to us and said, look, I already have my own Redshift. Your pivot table thing's like, that's kind of cool, but I really need integrations into the Redshift. Like I really need to get my data into my Redshift. And we're like, wow, I think we could do that. That makes sense. Like, and will you pay us for it? They're like, we'll pay you a lot of money for it. And that was like the aha moment of, great, we will do this And like within about a week, we changed the whole company to then being like integrations for Redshift. And that's basically the same product that we have today.
1: Interesting. Crazy amount of iteration and brain power behind this. So, so you couldn't have done it without the Y Combinator and raising cash. You couldn't have bootstrapped this thing. How much did you raise?
0: So we initially we raised go? about yeah, 750 K. So I, that got us about two years with three people. Um, and then we started to run out of money and, and like, Maybe we could probably not like that. That time, that two, two years was really valuable because the three, like two of us and, and our first hire, Mel, who's our CTO, it was like a really good time for us to bond and learn how to work with each other and build that trust and understanding of the space. And then when we launched, we decided instead, because actually fundraising is really hard when you just have like an idea and you're like two people. And so we really hated fundraising. And so a friend was like, the best time to fundraise is when you can go in with your fingers up saying like, I don't need your money, basically. Let's talk about partnership. And so we, when we, we got our first customer, we decided, let's not fundraise. Like, let's just run on revenue. And we spent the next 18 months running on revenue. And so wow. I switched to doing all the sales and marketing and partnerships. We, hired, we started hiring more engineers and we built out like that for the next, yeah, 14 or 15 months. And that was probably the most stressful time because we had to pay salaries. We would like run. A, we had a hit number every single month in order to pay salaries. You had
1: to run a real business,
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but as a result of it, we had like a really good business then. Yeah. And so then we yeah. raised some more capital. You know, in 2017, raised another 800 or so K. We immediately then started a, a team in, in India. Um, so we were about 12 or 13 people started in, in office in India because we just knew that the type of work this, that we were doing, this integration work, was not. it was not the type of work that someone from AWS or GCP or Stanford or like Harvard or Yale would want to do. So we needed to find a group of folks who were interested in this and, and how can we make it interesting? And so then we kind of scaled from there.
1: So How much have you raised to date? One and a half? Oh,
0: we're, we are 163 million raised now. Okay. So at some point... <laughs> After those tiers, we raised about, yeah, 800. Then we raised another 1.2 about a year later. Then we raised, a year later, we raised 15. And then we raised uh, 35. And then we raised 100 uh, this last year. So how much much equity have the two
1: of you guys got now between the two of you?
0: We still, I mean, I I think it's somewhere around 25% still. So decent. Yeah. I mean, we, we, because we had this first few years of raising on, 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 re, or like not raising, we didn't dilute a whole lot. Yeah.
1: I think that's probably one of the smartest things you did, isn't it?
0: For sure. And, Absolutely.
1: Mean, there's probably there's probably hundreds of smart things, but like that <laughs> I think that's, I used to coach the, um, well, I didn't coach them. I led the strategic planning for Hootsuite about eight years ago. And I got Ryan and the leadership team at Hootsuite to drive towards profitability because I said, the only way you're going to build a real business is to build a real business. Like you can't, you can't just build or bust build. At some point, you need to have revenue and gross margin and profitability. Um, and you guys doing that in the early days would have given you some of the rigor that, that I think has allowed you to really scale today. What's Absolutely. Ch- what changed when you were doing the funding rounds? And by the way, do you know a company called InfoTrust at all, or a data analytics company?
0: I don't know them, but they're there. I mean, it's a relatively large space. So there's a lot, a lot of folks in it. Um, Do
1: the the analytics companies use your tools or do they, they do?
0: Absolutely. I mean, a a lot of them are, a lot of the ones we partner with are more of the, I would say general purpose uh, analytics companies. So like Tableau or Looker or SciSense.
1: Um, yeah, these guys do analytics for some of the big brands. I'll, I'll ping them and see if they, if they know you or if they should be introduced. But I used to coach them. They're about 80 employees. They're the number one company to work for in Cincinnati. Um, but they just do analytics work for big brands. I'm curious whether this would be helpful for them.
0: I think that honestly, so one of the areas we've actually started building is a, an OEM offering for specifically that and for mm-hmm. a lot of the bigger brands. And a lot of times they work with other companies. Uh, and so we we've definitely started to grow that I'd love an introduction.
1: Yeah, I'll I'll ping them and um and they're I coached them for a couple of years and then they're COOs in the CO Alliance too. So I'll find out if they if they know you guys or or should be introduced. So what what changed for you guys as a company as you started to raise money and what were some of the lessons um that that you learned that maybe you would have done differently as you were raising the first couple rounds.
0: So I think that um the biggest thing was early on we were like, let's just keep make let's just keep driving this as a like trying to be a profitable company. And then we raised a little bit, we're like, okay, let's see if we can make like make this efficient. Right. Like I think we had this weird belief that we'd seen a lot of companies around us where people just raise tons of money and they were like, the profits will come and we'll figure it out. And they never did. And and so we were always scared. We're like any amount of money we raised, we want to be able to make up for it and get back to profitability. So that was every round, even through our a, when we raised our a, it was like, okay, cool. We're still at a place where we could pull back growth and we could get to profitability. But at every round it was like, well, there's an opportunity for us to continue to grow really fast. And we should probably go hire more people. And if we do, I'm sure we can actually get the revenue from it. And so we got a little bit more uh, confidence with, with, yeah, you know, taking on a little bit of cash, and then we took a little bit more, and then we like took a little bit more, and I think it was really the it was the last round that we felt uh, like, you know what? At this point, we are like we're committed to going public fully, and now it's just about how do we have the right partners? How do we make sure we capitalize the business correctly? Um, not dilute, not not over dilute, not over raise and, you know, and still, you know, drive the business to a place where also we can get back to profitability because we're going to have to at some point, especially as we go towards public. And I think, you know, I've looked at other companies where they raise a ton of money, they get really bloated, they overhire, and then they have to do this crazy swing to get back to public. They hire a bunch of people and there's a bunch of axes swung and like culture goes to hell and, you know, it's a bit tough. And so we're really trying to be thoughtful about mm-hmm. the path towards public from here. Um, one other thing that I think is interesting is when we raised our A, we had a number of other offers that came in much higher. Like we had a couple that were super high and we had a couple that were low and we had a couple in the middle. We really optimized for, for adding a partner that we, uh, you know, a human that could add to our board that would help us through those, that phase of our business. So we added Ilya from Matrix Partners and he, he's just was like a really great cultural fit for us at that, at that time of the business and, and today, um, and so the other, we had one other earlier board member who we brought in through the seed, who is a little bit frustrated, like, hey, you know, we could get a much higher valuation. What are we doing? And and we said, look, we're not on the treadmill yet. Like, we don't really want to fully try and go and maximize value and, and put ourselves at this really high expectation. We want to raise capital and get the right partner so that we can make sure we're getting the, like, you know R and D part of our business in place, and really like getting the right foundation. And another great person to just give us advice, a mentor. Um, and so that worked. And the same thing actually happened the next one with A16Z. You know there was there's always been people who've come in at higher valuations, but it's kind of like we really wanted a partner who knew enterprise super well. So we brought in you know, uh, 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 Martine from A16Z, again, super helpful. And, and that whole A16Z has been extremely helpful for us as a company with their operating team. You know, and so I think every round you have to think through more than, it's more than just capital. Uh, you have to think through exactly what it is that you want in those. I think as we get to larger and larger sizes, it does become more about capital, about valuation as well. Um, but that's only, you know, every single round we've had a very different strategy or tactic
1: interesting like you it's interesting that you guys were aware of that but i think it's also interesting that you even explained it to some of your early board members like why we're doing some of these things right because the the reality is opinions are like assholes right we've all got one and we can get that advice and opinions but if it's not directed in the vision of where you're going or why we're doing stuff it can often just pull you off track not and sometimes not even they're not doing it um out of malice or the, the, they just, if they're not clear on the direction, they're going to give you advice with the direction they think you're going in. Totally. How, how have you learned? And I assume it's a board of directors now versus advisory board, or is it more advisory?
0: No, it's a, it, we have a full board of directors now. Yeah. We have, um we have a, a couple of observers in it and it, we have two independents and, and t- two VCs and then George and I and a couple. Yeah. yeah how do you work
1: with the board where, you know, there's a balance of getting some advice and there's a balance of like the compliance and regulatory and, and risk. Do you go to the the board of directors for advice and for, you know, strategic, or do you go to them off offline for that?
0: We, so the board that we put together, our our strategy was to try and put a bunch of very bright people who will help us on the board. And so we have, everyone that we have on the board was, a, an operator at some point. Most of them were all CEOs before at some point. And so we kind of optimized very heavily for that because we wanted to be able to bring to, to use them as mentors and, and as you know folks to be advisors for us. And largely we've done that. I mean I would say we're very transparent with everyone on our board about everything. It's not I, you know I've heard about companies that you know have problems and they hide it and then they try and hide it and eventually it shows up and it's like this big problem. It's like we've been maybe almost overly transparent about these things, mm. um, and we just have a lot of trust, and we get a lot of feedback, and it's been very helpful for us. I think at some point, once we go towards a public, you know, offering everything else, we'll have to move more towards compliance, and then politics creeps in, and there's this, you know, all that stuff that probably ensues from there. We've really tried to not have any of that be part of it, and we even do like. A board offsite every year, and we go. We went skiing two years ago before COVID, and it was like it's just great to get to know humans. And then they all have great, you know, networks. And and you know, for, for me personally, the thing that's been valuable for you know for that network is whenever I don't know how to do something, it's like let me go talk to the you know three or four subject matter experts who are the experts in that thing. And then they're like, oh yeah, you, this is the progression you're going to go through, and here's the things to do, and here's the things not to do, and here's the teams to talk to, and whatever. And like that's been crazy valuable at this point. For me. Yeah, it's, it's,
1: when you talk to the people that have done it a hundred times before, right? It's just so simple to, um, I love the board offsite idea as well. I think that's amazing because you actually do get to humanize everything. So for you and George, considering you've been friends, I'm actually going to our family cottage. We've had this same place for not quite a hundred, but we're s- about 60 years right now. So I'm going back there with my kids, uh, in about 10 days, Um, so you and George childhood friends, I guess it's all been easy, right? This whole eight years, no arguments, just everything's been (laughs) right.
0: Well, yeah, so we're, we are childhood friends. His, I was actually close with his little brother. Um, his little brother, I used to get all kinds of trouble and, you know, he was a little bit more, uh, tame and, you know, he like read more books and like did more fishing. And I was like, we were like, you know, taking the golf cart and crashing it and I wonder, I wonder
1: if if the gas on the fire will work as good as last summer. Right?
0: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so, um, the you know, the last eight years have been, uh, they've been amazing. I mean, I think early on this first, that first two years of really get to know each other. And, and I learned a ton from him and I continue to learn a ton from him, especially around the technology pieces of it. And then I can kind of push a little bit on the operating pieces it's been great. I think naturally, I really like to do a lot of the operating stuff. He really likes to do a lot of the kind of deep thinking product, um, visionary pieces, and he's extremely good at it. So we have a natural yin yang, but I also think we look and pick different things and we're kind of just always a little bit in each other's business and it's okay. It, it works for each other. And there's certainly been times when we've like argued over stuff, but an argument, it doesn't go past like, it's not like, oh, hey, like, screw you for this. Like, there's no hard feelings felt from that. And that's been something for me that's been really great because like, I, we just have such a deep trust in each other. When
1: you're debating for the growth of the organization, you're not fighting with each other because you don't like each other. H- have, you, have you had disagreements or debates around stuff in front of the team? Or do you try to keep those debates as the CEO and COO separate from the team? Not, maybe not so much the leadership team, but like the rest of the employees.
0: Some, I mean, you know, I, I don't know that we have a strong conflict meeting culture. Um, you know, I think we'd have okay debates in our, in our means we're not like dead out, like everyone's yelling sort of thing there's certainly been times when George and I have been in conflict in in conversations with folks who are outside the leadership team who felt like there's two Titans throwing rocks at each other. And we're like, okay, let's pause this and like talk about it later. Cause the funny thing is in these conversations, it seems like really intense and everyone's like, Oh my gosh, like the, you know, the two founders are like yelling at each other. And then like, we got a call. We're like laughing about it. We're like, okay. Yeah. Like I still agree with you on this point, but like, whatever. And we just keep going. We talk about something else. We talk about something else. And like, right. um, so it's created it's created some friction for sure with the with the organization.
1: How how have you grown as a COO? I mean, eight years in building this company, and literally from from the startup co-founder to to today with five hundred and seventy ish employees, how have you had to evolve, and and where have you evolved as a leader?
0: It's so there's been so many different. I mean, early on it was like I had to learn how to build. I literally learned how to code. I coded all the like front end. I like got really deep into that, and then. And then switch, I switched to switch to becoming like a sales leader and just doing all the sales. So I, you know, did all of that. And then it was like marketing and I started hiring and, and then it became this thing where I like, I'd be like, we need this. Let me go learn how to do it. And then like, let me hire someone to do it. And then like grow from there. I think um, I ref- in reflecting, I think there's a lot of founders who realize they don't like the operating piece that much. And at some point they're like, I just need to like, I'm out. Like I'm either going to leave. I'm going to go start something else because that's, what's exciting to me or whatever. I think I've been fortunate that I actually really like the operating piece. Like the things that that I enjoy are, I like competition. I like people and I like building stuff. And Mm. so like, I was actually a sculpture major in college and I had played a lot of sports. And so it was like the combination of like sports and like sculpture were like, great. And then you know, now it's like, okay, I'm building not just the product, but I get to help build teams or we're building structures or processes or I'm helping build careers. Um, and it also does people, and we're all competing all together, like one big team. And so I get a lot of joy on that bit. Um, your, par-
1: your parents must have been shaking their heads and going, Where did we fuck up when our kids <laughs> did a sculpture major in college? With, with the, I imagine, the other four people who chose that same major in the entire planet
0: yeah it was actually it was just me uh i mean it was a fine arts but i was the only one who did a thesis in sculpture well it's kind of funny my my mom's actually an artist but she was always like ah you know not going to make much money doing this my dad's a lawyer so he was like yeah do whatever you want um and I, you know i think i kind of realized over time that like art wasn't a competitive enough nor did it deal with people enough for me to be a long-term career and then I looked at architecture and that wasn't quite right and I looked at industrial design that wasn't quite right then I got a text somehow and was like this is freaking amazing like how did I not know about this earlier
1: so you are and you are building something have you ever read by the way the book the agony and the ecstasy I've not read it it's about Michelangelo it's a, it's the story of Michelangelo and you know all of his sculpture that he did and the paintings and the design and him and Leonardo going into hospitals and stealing bodies to understand, the, <laughs> to understand the human body so he could carve the Michelangelo and the Piata and I when I toured Italy thirty years ago I I went and saw as many of his sculptures as I could see after reading this book it's a fantastic story,
0: oh, I will definitely read it I, yeah. in, in college I did study a bunch of Michelangelo just such an amazing interesting human but very amazing
1: incredible and Like, at the I, like end of his I life had, like i had no like, idea well i had no idea he was a sculpture i thought he was just the painter right and then right and i found out in the book i'll, I'll do this and we'll go back to the interview here but the, uh leonardo and michelangelo competed to see who was going to paint the sistine chapel Leonardo painted one wall of the Sistine Chapel. Michelangelo painted the other as a competition. Leonardo used a heater to try to get his glaze to, to um, seal faster and he burned the bottom of his painting, which is why he lost out to Michelangelo. And that's how Michelangelo painted. I'm like, that's so fucking cool. Like, right. That's know this amazing. Shit. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: And, and also yeah. so
1: stupid, right? Like they had a contest <laughs> to see who's going to win. Like, really? Um, anyway. All right, let's go back to the 22 year old. we got the 22 year old Taylor. He's graduating from college. He's gonna start off on his career. What advice would you give yourself back then?
0: That was a tough time for me because I was like, I don't know if I should go do art and live in New York. I don't know. Otherwise I should maybe go try and do industrial design. I think for me, the advice that I got at that point from I think my college football professor and was just like, go as hard as you can. Like go a million miles an hour just pick something. Even if you don't know if it's perfect, just go a million miles an hour at it until you either like it or you don't, then you go a million miles at something else. And PG basically said the same thing when we started, the, when he started 5 Train it was just like, hey, go a million miles an hour until it's the wrong thing. And then like, go a million miles an hour at something else. And, you know, I think that was the thing that eventually got me through. So I decided, all right, well, I'm just going to take a bunch of classes in industrial design. I'm going to go a million miles an hour at that. And at night, I'm gonna start learning how to build websites because that seems like I can make money doing that. And then you know, someone called me and said, Hey, a friend from college was like, Hey, why don't you come join my startup that we just you know started? And like, here's a one-way ticket to fly out to San Francisco. And I was like, This is awesome, this sounds great. <laughs> like I'll, this whole I'll thing is working. And I got there, I was like, This is awesome, and then million miles an hour, and and I just haven't really looked back. And you know, I, I definitely got lucky, but I think there's a lot of folks that I talked to. I've talked to a lot of folks in college in the last year or two, just to like, cause they asked like, how did you get here? And I think I got lucky, but I also, you know, I picked something and went hard at it and then, and picked something that I thought about that I thought for my life, I would be excited about. And that's the thing that I think a lot of people don't always think about. Like when I'm 50, if I'm still doing this thing, am I going to be happy? And it's like, pick that and then go hard at it. And, and you'll find out very quickly whether you do or not.
1: Yeah, I love that. By the way, my one of my kids is 20 and he's kind of in that stage of trying to figure it out. And I, I kind of told him that last week, but not really in the same wording. I'm going to go back to him and just say, it's just just pick it and run with it and go a million miles an hour. And if it works, great. If it doesn't, who cares? Just pick the next thing. and go. The key is to just really drive hard and have fun while you're doing it and then mm-hmm. pick something else to drive hard on. All right, man. Taylor Brown, the COO from Fivetran. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks for sharing with us on the Second Command Podcast.
0: Yeah, Cameron, thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.